Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, for she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of God. What is the most important thing you do in any given week? Uh, if this was a few months ago when we were a Zoom-only church, I would tell you to put in the chat. It would be interesting to see what the important things, if you're on Zoom, I won't see the chat if you put it in there. What are the important things you do in any given week? My guess is most of what we would come up with wouldn't be too exciting. The important things are pretty ordinary. I imagine if we were to come up with a top 10 or 20 list, sleep would appear somewhere on that. Sleep, some of you love sleep, but sleep is not very exciting usually. Uh, you're not doing anything, you're just laying there. So because of that, um, sleep, even though it's important, seems like something we can sacrifice for things that are more exciting, like for instance, the pressures of work, where you think, well, let me cut into my sleep so I can get more things done. When I'm, when I'm sleeping, I'm not getting anything done. But when I'm working, I'm getting things done. So let me stay up till two in the morning in order to get work done. Look, if you have a deadline, maybe you have to do that. But long term, while few of us get paid to sleep, uh, if you want to be good at your work, you probably should be invested in making sure you're sleeping as best as you're able. Sleep is important. It doesn't feel important. But if you don't sleep well, your emotions will be affected, uh, your, your mental clarity, that will affect your relationships, your livelihood, all of these things. So sleep is pretty important. Um, drinking water, that's pretty important. Maybe it's not very exciting, but whatever you're getting from other beverages with sugar and alcohol and whatever else is in them you don't need, and actually maybe uh, it's not something that you don't need them, but they could be negative for you, but we need liquid, we need water. Food, um, food is something that we need, but the interesting thing about our needs in terms of food is that what we need is pretty basic. Um, you know, if you just boil some meat and have some raw vegetables, you'll be doing pretty well. But food, like some of these other things, um, it's not just that they're important, but, but there's a potential for so much more, isn't there, with, you know, with food, with any of these things, that, that you need to eat anyway, but, but why not 
make the most of it. So food could be a great source of pleasure. And not simply in terms of taste, but, but if you really want to get specific, how you plate something aesthetically, the way it looks, uh, how, the texture of it. Food ha could play a great social component, uh, the deepening of relationships as we gather together to eat. And so food, our need is pretty basic and simple. But if you can eat anyway, why not make the most of it? <laughs> um, the reason I'm asking the question about what are the most important things you do during the week is what I want to talk about today, what I think is the most important thing. Clearly, I have a bias. But I think going to church might be the most important thing you do each week. Now, I realize the phrase going to church is already going to provoke some of you. I don't mean if you just show up here and are bodily present and not engaged, um, or I'm not talking about some rule that you need to keep or that God will be pleased if you, you know, have the perfect attendance award. If you have a healthy view of what it means to assemble as a community, that's what I'm talking about. Um, I think it's the most important thing you can do. And so like sleep, for example, uh, it may feel disconnected from everything else you're doing, but as we go into Psalm 84 today and next week, we'll be looking at this over two weeks, there's a vision for this community that gathers in the presence of God that it, it doesn't just bolster your religious life, but, uh, but in the same way that if you're not sleeping well, your emotions will be bad, your mental clarity. Um, if you're not strengthened in your spirit, encouraged, helped, it will affect everything you're doing, your work, your relationships, your physical health. Coming to church is important. And, and the analogy of food. There's not much we need to do when we come to church. Let's come together, let's pray, let's read the Bible, let's encourage one another, let's break bread. Um, but if, we're, if it's that important, and if we're going to come together anyway, it could be so much better. So music, for example, we actually don't need it. You don't have to have music. The church has sung from the beginning. But boy, um, it's so much better, isn't it? Not just a little bit, but it's so much better when there's music that, that helps. And, um, you know, we don't have to have a carefully prepared service, but, but if we make the most of our time together, it just becomes more meaningful. And so, yeah, you could just have boiled meat and some raw vegetables, but if you sit down with people you know and love and spend some time with a carefully prepared meal, it's just so much greater. So we want, if we are going to gather weekly as we should, that's the pattern that we see from the scripture in the church throughout the ages, as we should, we want it to be as good as it can be. And yet we're in a period now where things can't be as good as they can be. And in fact, we're struggling just to make them sufficiently mediocre. <laughs> Again, what do we need to do as a church? Well, we need to gather to pray and to encourage one another, and we've been doing that. You know, the whole last year and a half, Zoom has been a helpful tool. It's enabling us now to be here as a, as a smaller than usual group, and so we don't have that lively energy. Our friends on Zoom are able to be with us, and so we're doing the best that we can. And we're not quite just eating boiled meat and raw vegetables. But, um, you know, this is not uh, Balud or one of our, our, our New York's fine dining experiences. Um, we are here to gather in the presence of God, and we're going to do the best that we can. Um, but how has this year and a half affected us? And I think in the same way that if you are invited to a great dinner the night before, you may have a, have a tough meeting at work or something, but... Um, but if you're invited to a, a good dinner at the end of that, you might say, you know what, tomorrow's going to be a tough day, but I'm so looking forward to that great meal. Um, but if, 
every day, week after week, you're just having boiled meat and vegetables, you might start to feel like, boy, I, I just I don't want to sit down and eat again. Um, I think it's important to talk about what we're doing because a year and a half into Zoom and now hybrid, and we thought we might be out of hybrid, but because of the Delta variant, it's going to be something like this for a little more, and let's keep trying to think of ways we can do it better. But it's a little bit more like we're, we're focusing on the basics, which is really what we need. And there's opportunities in that, you know. If you go from your, your fancy meal to simple eating, well, it's good to get rid of the sugar and the fat and the salt. Um, but all of a sudden, maybe eating is not something you look forward to and you, you perhaps would rather skip. Uh, there's a temptation at this point that that's what gathering as a church can feel like. Yeah, we know it's important, but um, oh boy, I'm tired. <laughs> and it would just be easier to not do it or to do it in some half-hearted way. But like things that are important, if you, if you do what's exciting or what's urgent, and you never do the important things, over time it's not good. And so gathering for worship, even if you disagree with me that it's the top, even if it's top five, it's important. And so let's remember that. So today we're going to highlight a little bit more of the joy themes in, in Psalm 84. Next week, the strengthening themes. But I want to talk about um, the importance of worship. And where I want to begin is what, what I'm calling an internal prompt. And uh, where I'm beginning with this idea of an internal prompt is to say, there's something in you that longs for what we're aiming to do here. Now, some of you would say, well, I don't really love singing. I don't like, you know, reciting prayers. I'm not talking about whether or not you like church, but I'm talking about your fundamental, deepest human desires is somehow going to reach their only true satisfaction in the kinds of things we're here to celebrate. So I'm not talking about the forms and how we're doing church and whether or not you like church or our church or whether or not you like a certain style of music. All those things are important, but I'm talking about these deep desires and drives that we have, that we seek satisfaction in the world and nothing truly satisfies us. And we're told, well, there's a reason for that. And so uh, verse 2 is a helpful verse in a very joyful psalm because you could read a psalm like Psalm 84 and think, you know, there are some people that just... They love religion, they love Christianity, they love church, they're just naturally excited. And what's wrong with me? <laughs> that sort of, I have, to, I have to make a commitment to going to church. It takes being disciplined to open my Bible. Uh, and you realize, even this writer of Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, oh Lord Almighty. You know, th this, this vision of the kind of person that really likes being devoted. Well, verse two, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. You know, he cries out later, hear my prayer. There's a sense in which what he's saying is true, and maybe he's feeling it at the moment, but, but even the best of us, the, the most religiously secure, have this sense of longing. It's part of life in this world, and some of us, the longings are deep. Uh, and here's this psalm. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. There's something good that this person knows is real and isn't fully experiencing, but knows where to look for it. And, and you, if you read through the psalm, the imagery really is about place. And at the, the time of the writing of the psalm, it would have been the temple in Jerusalem, your courts, your altars. And so there's this dwelling place where God is. Um, 
even though at this time period for the people who grew up in Israel, the temple was probably by far the most magnificent thing that they ever saw architecturally in terms of the, the, the clothing of the priests and the ceremonies. It was probably the most dynamic and, and dramatic. You know, what did people do before Netflix? Well, you know, this temple's pretty good if, you know, if otherwise we're just following the sheep around. And so the temple itself was a glorious place. But what's clear here is it's, it's not a celebration of brick and mortar. It's not about priestly robes. It's not uh, about the things that they do that all are a source of strengthening and delight. But verse 2 goes on to say, My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. That's where joy comes from. That's where joy is expressed. It's the living God. What is it that made the, the temple glorious? Well, if you're going to build a temple, make it as great as you can because it just helps the way we're wired as human beings. Uh, but even if you're in that tabernacle before there was the, the temple, uh, when they were a wandering, traveling people and it was a tent, they still tried to make it as glorious as possible. But what was always special about it was not the ceremony, but, but who was present and his activity there. And so the longing, the joy is tied to that. And that connects deeply with who we are as human beings, with the human story and the story presented in the Bible. Because if you read about the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, as you could read them in Exodus and then you know, further in terms of the ceremonies in Leviticus, or you read about the temple which came in the period of the kings, the description of what needs to be there has these echoes of the Garden of Eden. You know, there's supposed to be trees with pomegranates carved into things. And there's supposed to be these lampstands that shine lights. And, and, and you get a sense in which the, the opening uh, chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and then in 3 you have just a little bit more of, of Eden. But we meet God as the creator. And there's a lot there, but one of the unique, utterly unique things about the way God is presented in the Bible is he gives life. Only he can do that. He can give life, he can create life, and he can sustain life in a way that none of us can. And so this life-giving God is there, right in the beginning of the Bible, and he creates a garden, and he places Adam and Eve in it, and their task of work is to extend the garden over the, the whole earth. So that, that the garden, which would resonate with so much of who we are as human beings, aesthetically, you know, think of the temptation of Adam and Eve, the fruit was pleasing to the eye, and seemed like it would taste good, like what they must have seen and experienced elsewhere. This garden, uh, the natural beauty, in the same way that now, sometimes for some of you, being out in nature, you know, in the mountains, the lakes, the beaches, um, there's something there that makes your soul feel right. That's the way God made us. He, he placed us in a place that was aesthetically beautiful. Would have smelled good. Gardens smell good. You know, the description of God in Genesis 3, walking through in the cool of the day, the breeze, it's this picture of of humanity thriving, flourishing. But it's that visit from God in Genesis 3 that seems ordinary, that part of the life in the garden, it looks good, it tastes good, we have fellowship, we're not ashamed. All of the things, if we were to, to imagine, what would make for a great existence where, where we're not longing, but we're satisfied? Where we're not struggling, but we have joy? You know, Eden is a picture of one version that was meant to be cultivated and developed and yet, if you're familiar with the Bible story, Adam and Eve turn from God and then they're, they're exiled. They're, they're kicked out of Eden and, and Eden is closed off, it's guarded. And human wandering and human longing and human dissatisfaction begins there and then expresses itself out in the messy history we read throughout the rest of the Bible. 
what was the tabernacle? What was the temple? Well, it was meant to be a portal, a sense, a gateway, where there was something that was to remind people of Eden as they gathered, as, as they assembled to say, humanity no longer has access to God. You've turned away. <laughs> and now we have these human instincts to be satisfied, but where is God? What is God like? Can we trust him? Do we need to fear him? And even in the building of the temple, when they said, you know, we've been wandering for the tabernacle, but now we have our own place. Let's make a permanent place that's glorious. Even when they did that, they acknowledged in their prayer life, the God of the heavens and the earth doesn't dwell in the houses made by human beings, but God sits enthroned in the heavens. He's not just here contained to our temple. Otherwise, it would be idolatry. It's a God that we're making, that we have control over. They said, this God is everywhere, is glorious, but... Uh, the language for the temple was, it was a footstool. He sits enthroned in the heavenly realms over all the earth. But as a people, we have the privilege that he rests his feet in our midst. There's a place that we can gather that nobody else on the earth has access to that we could come before the living God. And so there was a sense in which the whole community was organized around that. The tabernacle in terms of if you read the, the instructions for where people camp out, and then in the temple, that, that all of the festivals, all of the, the community life was centered there. The sense was everything we do, our, our eating, our drinking, our celebration, our medical system, if you think about the work that the priests did, checking people for leprous spots, that sort of thing. All of life was centered on the hope that if God is with us, we are the most privileged of people. And that is our source of joy. Our joy is for the living God. And it's that, that this uh, psalm reminds us that if we can assemble as a people in the presence of the, the living, the life-giving, the life-sustaining God, well, then there's something that could happen in our midst as the Spirit works to heal and to encourage and to instruct and to produce joy and to strengthen and the various things that happen um, all the time, but sometimes more than others. Sometimes things are terrible and we come as a hurting people needing help. Sometimes we come as a celebrating people. We usually come as a somewhat mixed people. Some celebrating, some hurting, uh, some needing help. But this gathering in the presence of the living God. And, and the creational themes that you see all throughout scripture, verse three, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. And the Psalms always have this you know, the, the mountains and the rivers and the trees and the rams uh, and the sheep and all of creation is invited uh, because that's, that's the way it should be, this glorious, beautiful, harmonious place where God is present and life flourishes. That is this distant echo because now we live in a world where, um, where there's war and, and um, where the environment is breaking down and all of these issues. Um, but you think of, of Psalm 84, even the sparrow wants to build a house there. And then you think of Jesus trying to encourage us to say, does God not even know when one sparrow drops out of heaven? And yet how much greater value are you than they? There's a sense in which the whole of creation is looking for joy and for glory and for life. And Jesus comes and says, but, but God will make it known. He will, he will invite you to join that people in that community so you can have that joy. And... It's not instant, it's not constant, it's not simply every time you show up at church you'll have a great experience and you'll never have difficulty. But over time we learn that the world will not satisfy us if the things of the world are an end in themselves. Success is good, 
but if success is the only thing, it will never satisfy you. If you're focused on God and your success is something that God has done and you can celebrate and share and has a good purpose, then it takes on a different posture. And so that longing that we need to identify, because human to exist is to long, to be dissatisfied, that, that things are never enough. And those that experience that sometimes think, what's wrong with me? And here's the answer. You're a human being. That's your condition. A human being in this world where God is still grasped by faith and not by sight. Some long more than others. All of us are longing and dissatisfied. But we're all told to orient our longings towards a path towards joy that only God who gives life uh, can bring things into your life that will, will start to restore and satisfy. There was a very interesting article this week in the New York Times. Uh, a woman named Kate Bowler was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And she writes uh, an essay on the idea of the bucket list. And she does that because the advice she was getting now that, you know, certainly your years are going to be miserable because of, of the therapies you will go through. But even though you're only 35, your years may be brief. And so why not get right to making the most of it? That was the advice that she was repeatedly given. And her reflection, um, some profound things just about how, how that can't be it. And, and here's one thing that she says about the, the never-ending possibilities of, of a bucket list. And she in particular talks about humanity throughout the ages and our aspirations and the, and the kinds of things we wanted to do as, compared to, as contrasted maybe with the modern idea of the bucket list, that now for us that list of things that we want to accomplish in life or that we would do before we die, she's like, this is something different, something distinctly modern. She says the problem with aspirational lists, of course, is that they often skip the point entirely. Instead of helping us grapple with our finitude, they approximate infinity. They imply that with unlimited time and resources, we can do anything, be anyone. We can become more adventurous by jumping out of airplanes, more traveled by visiting every continent, and more cultured by reading the most famous books of all time. With the right list, we will never starve with the hunger of want. So it's that hunger of want that here she's saying, um, there's this infinite list if you have all the time in the world, and she says, I don't have all the time in the world, but I have want. There's this hunger, and, and what are we doing? we're keeping ourselves busy and distracted to a certain sense, trying to, to make sure that we're not having to grapple with that hunger that she's had to grapple with. And here's how she ends, and this is what I thought would be helpful for, for what we're looking at today. She says, there's nothing like a tally of life. In other words, you get to the end of the life and here's your bucket list or whatever you've accomplished. All of our accomplishments, ridiculous. All of our striving, unnecessary. Our lives are unfinished and unfinishable. We do too much, never enough, and are done before we've even started. We can only pause for a minute, clutching our to-do lists at the precipice of another bound a day. The ache for more, the desire for life itself, is the hardest truth of all. That ache for more, um, we all have it in us. Some of us don't feel it because we're, we're trying to fill our lives with things that, that make us not feel it. She describes that ache for more as the desire for life itself. That's what we want in adventure. That's what we want in good books. That's what we want in these experiences. And again, they're valuable. But she's come face to face with her finitude and says, at the end of the day, the bucket list is not going to satisfy me. It's not going to help me cope with what I'm facing. There's an ache for more, a desire for life itself.
And what we're told is, look, we're all wired different. We have different interests, things like that. But, but the, the desire for life itself, there's only one life giver. And so, so Christianity, theology, faith is not for people that have a particular bent or interest, but it's for human beings who are meant to flourish, to have life. And those longings remind us of our need, of our need of forgiveness, our need of repair, our need of help. But they also remind us that um, we're going to waste a lot of time and energy hoping that things that can't satisfy will provide an ultimate satisfaction. And we're told as you go through the dissatisfying life, there there is an increasing sense of purpose and contentment that comes from the living God. That's what Psalm 84 uh, points to, the, the joy. So I wanted to begin with these prompts within us, the longings that we have. But I want to move secondly to what I'm terming as a matchless priority. In other words, what's important? What are you going to prioritize? Well, well Psalm 84 talks about something that's matchless, that's incomparable. There's something that he and the people that he is with have discovered that really is a sense of joy, a sense of satisfaction. It's not perfect. There's still people who long. There's still people who want. There's still people who have to cry out in prayer. But they now know where to go, and that is a major step forward. And so, um, in verse 10, there's this comparison. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And that comparison, I think, is easy to see. You know, one day here would be better than a thousand elsewhere. What is the greatest beach vacation you can have or the greatest furnishings for your apartment or uh, whatever it is? He's saying there's something of that experience of having entered the presence of God in the assembling of his people for worship that what I saw there, nothing compares to it. I I would rather have one day of that than a thousand elsewhere. And I think if you talk to most Christians, there's something in the history of their experience that resonates with that. All of us are wired differently. We're we're different emotionally. Some people week after week are able to show up at church and just rejoice and feel it. And some people, it's just years of of just coming by faith, but but, but knowing, uh, trusting, but no doubt there's some point that most people have had a, had a sense that, that Christianity is not just an ideology. God is not just, you know, helpful to construct a philosophy. But there's something about God's beauty or greatness or kindness that, that actually has touched our lives. And it, and it often does happen in worship. And it could happen in a great setting, some conference where there's 2,000 people and the greatest musicians of, of the region. But... I've met a number of people that had happened at the youth retreat when they were 14 and they had 16-year-old kids who had spent a month on YouTube learning to play instruments, but there was something about God's visitation uh, in that moment. Um, it happens differently. It happens variously. Sometimes it's, it's in that assembly for worship where there's something about the beauty, the greatness, where, where you have what just maybe 10 minutes of your soul feeling at peace, of saying, this is, this is a kind of satisfaction that, that I long for that I haven't felt elsewhere. For some, it's not in the assembly. It's, it's that desperate prayer that you prayed that God answered, and you had that moment of kindness. The Lord saw, the Lord heard, and that touched your soul. All of a sudden, you felt, I see, I've, I'm seen, I belong. Um, uh, that built you up. It, it could be any number of things. It could be in the reading of a book, an idea that all of a sudden turns the lights on and makes sense of things. We're each different, 
But the Spirit comes and opens eyes to show us something of the glory and the greatness of God. And once we've caught a glimpse of it, it doesn't have to be a seven-year experience. Sometimes it's something God does that then helps us to see uh, that is what I need to reorient my life towards. I need uh, not always, we have to be careful not to try to always recapture that experience as if we could just work it up. But that true conviction that there is a joy in assembling before the Lord and giving thanks and, and hoping that he will show us again something of his favor and that he will sustain and strengthen us. And, and that's why assembling, there's something not just about, look, God will visit you in your personal prayer life. Uh, God does, does, works variously, but the normal pattern of saying, let's come together and encourage one another and sing and, and remember various things about God. Um, every week it may not be exciting, but if you're neglecting it, everything uh, is gonna suffer. But that, that normal pattern of coming together to remember, um, to have that faith, to seek that joy. And Christian worship in particular, we say it's Christ-centered because the life-giving God really gave us life in, in the one focused moment that helps convince us that this is true, that it's really worth sticking with, and that is through the life and ministry of Jesus. What was it about Jesus that, that you read the Gospels, and, and, and first of all, for the people who were there, there's constantly this something that they can't put their finger on. Who is it that has this authority? Um, who teaches with such wisdom? Who is it that has such compassion? The people that were in his presence sensed something that was transformative. But even in reading the accounts of, of reading the Gospels, especially if you pray and read, Lord, show me, there's something compelling about this unique person. And what was unique is he was the son of God. And you think about the human issue of being alienated from God outside of that garden where now maybe we can access God by coming to this temple where we can't even go in. There's a mediator, a priest needs to go in on our behalf. And yet there's something so glorious that that's, that was enough to sustain God's people for years. Then Jesus comes and, and the book of John, reminding us of the opening of the Bible. It's a new creation. It says in the beginning was the word. And you read through this, the idea of word, the Greek word logos, you read through the rest of the chapters, clear it's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. The word was God, that's very important. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He lived among us. It's become popular to have a paraphrase. He tabernacled among us. You know, what was the tabernacle? What was the, the temple? It was a, it was a place where, where God drew near and called you to draw near. The claim about Jesus is when God sent this one human being into the world, he wasn't ordinary, but, but he carried the presence, the reality of God in a way that then brought to fulfillment and realization all of the things that were hinted at through the tabernacle and the temple, chief being that one person would go as a mediator on behalf of others and offer himself. And so when Jesus is crucified, we could read it politically, this is what Romans did, um, but the New Testament interprets it theologically. Uh, this was a realization, a fulfillment of all of these things that were lost that are now life in its fullness being given to us again. And, and you read these details like in the Gospels when Jesus is crucified and he cries out in agony. The earth shakes and the curtain in the temple is torn in two. It's the end of the temple. This is no longer the place to meet with God, no longer the place that sacrifices are made. But even more than that, God is no longer veiled. 
behind this holy place because to be in his presence would destroy us. But Jesus has done something to cleanse us, a sinful people that now can draw near to a God in his holiness and greatness and receive a welcome. There's something about that whole community that gathered around this temple that they would see a pillar by day and fire by night and something of God's presence and glory, but he had no bodily form, nothing they can see, but there, there was a power that they had access to that they believed. And now we're told the days of the earth being invited to this one place to see something of his glory has changed because now the spirit comes upon God's people and now is to go out to the ends of the earth. Why is it important that we assemble as a church? Well, where is the place that God dwells? Well, God dwells everywhere. He sits enthroned in the heavens and the earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But the sending of the Spirit once was behind a veil that was only for that one priest once a year, now opens our eyes and renews our hearts so that we become Spirit-filled people. We are granted life, not just biological life with cells and a heartbeat, but we're granted um, a new life that, that is eternal, the fullness of life, the very thing that we ache for, the thing that we're trying to keep, distract ourselves uh, from the fact that life apart from God is dissatisfying. There is that grace and favor that we're, we're told in the New Testament that when, when God's people assemble, when we come together as the church, so the word ecclesia, ecclesia in Greek, is about an assembly, those who are called out of the world and who gather together, that's what the church is, is a gathering people, um, is described as a new temple that Jesus is being built, not of bricks and stones, not in one place, but by calling human beings and filling them with your spirit. He then says, wherever you are, assemble to, to sing and to seek me in prayer and to encourage one another and to seek my wisdom and advice and to be strengthened and to break bread and to do these various things that, that in this gathering, God is with us and God, God goes with us as we go out into the world. God is with us as individuals. But there's a certain ordinary pattern of saying, let the people of God come and seek to be full of the Spirit and sing and praise. And, and in that, His presence is, is here in a way that then does the things that we need. It encourages. And so those who don't feel like singing, you know, when you think about singing, Singing is a way to engage your heart and mind, to call your whole self to worship. Sometimes somebody shows up at church and they don't have it with them, in them. Sometimes you forget that part of singing is not simply a way that I can take the thoughts of my mind and, and embody them. But when I'm singing with others, I'm listening. And so when the person there is singing the thing I'm having trouble believing, I can hear them. And that helps because they're singing something I know is true, but but hasn't gripped me. And, and there's something about the assembly of God's people that God works variously. It could happen in one person leading prayer. It could happen in informal conversation afterwards. But we gather with the sense that when God is with us, um, he, will, he will work in a way that, that we fundamentally need. Um, and so this is important, gathering for worship. Let's do it the best that we can. And let's be patient that maybe we have limitations, but especially at this time period. But, but think about how, how we're drawn to the unimportant. Think about what the, the smartphone does, because it's, it's enough when you feel a little bit of stress, there's just a little bit of distraction. If you're a little bit bored and you need stimulation, there's something with sights and sounds and colors and activity. If, you need to, you know, if your life is boring, you could watch a, a two-minute video of people jumping off 20-foot buildings and surfing these huge waves and, you know, 
throwing a basketball 700 feet, and whatever it is, there's something about that that we, want to, we don't want to dip down further into the ache of life. The phone helps pick you up just a little bit. But, but you know it doesn't pick you up out of the depths, and you know over time you're just trying to manage your ache, <laughs> your longing. And the phone is a good tool. I'm not being critical of it. Um, but it's so able to do certain small things that it keeps us from, from doing the important things. And yes, you would be better spending a half hour with your Bible than five minutes on TikTok. But it's not going to feel that way. And you would feel better going for a walk, perhaps, than coming to church and masking and having to show your ID or having to log in over Zoom. But this is important. And because it's important by God's design, let's keep doing it. And let's do it believing that the greatness of it is not in what we can make of it, but it is in the presence of God, in our prayer, in our singing. But to the degree that God gives gifts and abilities, let's, let's make it as wonderful as we can, because if we're going to spend this time together, uh, let's take the gifts that God has given us and to rejoice and, and to be a celebrating people that welcomes others in and helps us with our boredom and our struggles. So, um, there's an internal prompt that all of us long for. Uh, there's this matchless priority. Here's the last thing, a whole life habit. Um, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. This idea of eternal life, of, of, of a longing that, that's not just a, a temporary fix, but this ever singing, something that we're attaching ourselves to that grows and deepens and lasts. Blessed is the one who dwells, who has a place among your people, who belongs. And that's the Christian invitation. Come, you belong. Uh, not because of who you are, but because of what Christ has done. And if you believe that, um, come and receive the blessing of God. Be part of this community. I don't mean a manual, although I certainly invite you to that, but, but these gatherings throughout the globe that are happening. Be, be among the assembling of God's people. And, he, and here are two things in, in, um, to try to encourage you this week to help it so that it's not simply a mental discipline. Church is important, therefore I need to go and I need to make a priority of it. But where, but where it really is a life-giving part, because you're not meant to just show up and go through the motions and leave, because then you'll forget about it. But are you listening for something um, that God might say to you? And it, it often happens in the sermon, because we spend the most time there and we get particular, but it happens in the prayers, it happens just in the silence of your heart, it happens in conversation. Is what we're doing here connected to what the rest of your life is? And for most of us, that's not intuitive. That's an area of growth. It's an area of learning. For most of us, we come here and we do the religious thing and then we go out into life and we do the taking care of my body and the, the, the working and taking care of my livelihood, whatever the case is. Church is important because it's not isolated. What we do here is connected to everything. If God is the life-giving God, then what he gives you here is for the weak. And, and one of the reasons that church seems boring and irrelevant is because we're not necessarily living by faith, following Christ in the day-to-day. Because -day. if you are, then all of a sudden the experience of church automatically becomes more relevant. So let's say, for example, on a given Sunday, you have this conviction, and maybe there's a sermon. You need to go out and share your faith. There are all these non-Christians that, that would benefit from hearing the good news. And you have this conviction, you know what, I don't do that. I'm, I'm going to do that this week. And so here are three scenarios. One is you go to work, and somebody says, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I went to church. Really? That's funny you go to church? And then you remember, oh, I should, I should help this person. Uh, yeah, actually, I do. And, you know, I don't know what you do on the weekends, but you'd be welcome to come. And, and you have a conversation with them. 
and you'll leave thankful. So next week you come in to church and you're called to praise God. And we say, well, we praise God for who he is and not what he's done. But you have no connection to what he's done. And so it helps to say, Lord, <laughs> um, you told me to share with my coworker and I did and it, it was, it was life-giving. And so now I could thank you in the assembly. Second scenario, your coworker says, what did you do this weekend? And you say, go to church. And they say, oh, uh, your church isn't one of those nasty, judgmental, hate everybody, really religious type church, uh, is it? And then you find yourself thinking, what do I say? And then they walk away and you think, oh my goodness, am I now going to be hated in the office? And then you come back that Sunday and now you have something to do in church. <laughs> Lord, I'm discouraged. What happened? I'm frustrated. You know, work is important and you told me to go out and I did this thing and now I feel humiliated. Do I need forgiveness? Do I need reconciliation? In the gathering of church, that's where you bring it. Here's another scenario. You go and you say, I'm going to share with the people I work with, and then you sit there and you look and you think, it's not convenient. It's a little bit scary. So that Sunday you show up and you say, Lord, you gave me this conviction to do it, and I didn't do it because I was afraid. So forgive me. I need to ask for forgiveness. And it's the various things that we do throughout the service, that we confess our faith and we pray for each other and we praise God and we confess our sins. All of us need all of these things, but some weeks you need some of it more than others. If during the week you're trying to take hold of something and you go out and live it, you're going to need to come back next week and continue to deal with it. And it may be Thanksgiving. It may be a humble confession. <laughs> it, it could be any number of things, but when, when, when you're looking for God to, to speak to you, to encourage, to help you in the gathering. That gives you work for the week. And if God didn't speak to you, then the work of that week is, Lord, where were you? I need strength. I need help. What can I do this week to make it better? Um, for this meeting to be important, you have to recognize that this meeting is what fuels everything you do in life. And so come with that expectation. Come with that commitment. Participate. Don't just show up passively, but, but come to listen, to have the ministry of the Spirit in our midst. Open our eyes and encourage us. Um, here's a second thing. Preparing for worship. You know, there's a lot of things that we do that you can't just jump into. If you're going to run, you don't want to just open your door and go at full speed, but you need to do some kind of warm-up. If you're going to go to the gym, you don't want to just lift your, lift your heaviest weight, but you need to get ready. Um, you're not going to get hurt coming into church without preparing yourself, but it seems like we could come in, you know, sort of in a half, all of these things, and, and then what happens is we depend on the really skilled kinds of things churches can do to, to shake you out of your apathy or your distraction. And that's where a church with a great band really provides great service, that sometimes people come in and they're just, their mind is elsewhere, and all of a sudden they just get yanked out of themselves and into this sense, and it's helpful. But most of us know that if you're depending on a band to help you engage with God, long-term, that's not sustainable. And so, yes, let's provide all the means we have to help and encourage one another but if you're showing up giving no thought to God at all and hoping that in this meeting something profound will happen, yes, God can do it. But the ordinary week by week, the pattern is more ordinary. And so Saturday night when you go to bed, remember, tomorrow I'm gathering with the Lord. Lord, help me to sleep tonight so that I'm better able to worship. And if you wake up having slept, thank you, Lord, that I could go to church. If you hadn't, Lord, I'm going to need your help because I'm a bit tired. <laughs> uh, and then maybe you read your Bible that morning because you meant to every other morning and you didn't get to. And... Yes, the Bible will be read in church. If you don't get to it, that's okay. There's no guilt here. We're talking about establishing healthy patterns. If you, if you read the passage that will be preached on, you may find that the, the sermon is a little bit more understandable. 
that it doesn't depend on the preacher, but, but depends on your familiarity with the passage. And so, so again, there's no guilt here, there's no rules, but if this is important, remember its importance and, and, and make it an important part of your rhythm because then it finds where right now you're thinking, I need to get myself ready for church. Once you do that, you find actually church is getting me ready for everything else. And that's the investment. It's not simply that I need to warm up. Some people say, I'd rather warm up than do the hard exercise. <laughs> but people into exercise say, I'd rather skip the warm up, but I need to do it so I don't injure myself. Look, right now, some of you need to say, I need to, I need to make progress in, in just the disciplines of, of valuing church. But when you're really walking the Christian life as you're invited to, there's a sense in which what we do here then will help you with your relationships. It will help you with your emotional struggles. It will help you with the choices you're making. It will help you uh, with your work and your livelihood and your gifts and abilities. What we're doing here may have no direct connection to a specific issue this week. But as a human being who needs life, who's longing for something more, something satisfying, what we're doing readies you for everything. And so friends, let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Let me pray for us. Our Father, here we are again. We've been gathering for years, every week in some form, and uh, Lord, thank you that you've sustained us in so many ways over these years. Uh, but here we are still, uh, people who take much for granted, a distracted people, a complaining people, uh, and not necessarily a spiritually vibrant people. And so individually work in our lives, um, renew us, give us the joy that's expressed in Psalm 84. It's a gift from you, Lord, we need it. We want life itself to, to come into the aches of our lives, to satisfy our longings. But Lord, as we struggle through life, may our church be a community where we help one another, where we call each other to faith, where we minister to one another, where we um, role model a good and better way to live. Lord, do that work in our midst today, but especially this year, where it just feels harder, where we're a bit tired, um, where, Lord, the basic things we've always done just are less appealing. Lord, remind us of a joy that it comes as your gift. Give us that joy, not simply so that we will be happy Christians, but that when we go into the world, we will be your presence and uh, your blessing. Help us in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.